ensemble for the wonderful music uh, that they came up with. This, this was a terrific uh, worship service, wasn't it? And thank you, Mr. Gregory, for the introduction, I think. Since I've been baptized, I have never uttered the following words, but I think I want to say them today. I will never forgive you for this. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not true. Not true. We forgive, don't we? And forget. Both. Good afternoon to you. Thank you so much for having us up here. We, sincerely, we really love coming up to the Tulsa Church. We always have a great... No, this is my dad, Wynn. He's, he's helping out. Thank, thanks a lot. He does good for, for an old man, doesn't he? Okay. I'm not the old man. There, I said it right here. Thank you. But, but we, we really enjoy coming up here, and it, it's such a treat to be here, not only because of the hospitality that the Tulsa, Tulsa Church shows us every time, but also because we got to be around here uh, during the Women's Conference. This is a most inspiring time. Can I quickly introduce the um, uh, cast and crew of the puppet show, the three ladies? There's my wife, Nancy. She's Miss Nancy. Stand up. And then there's her sister, Karen. Uh, she's Stand up, Karen. She's Susie Q. And then there's Lisa. Where's my adopted daughter, Lisa, right there. Okay. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret. These, yeah, you can sit down now. These, no, 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 no. We work together on these scripts. And they'll start with one of us, and they'll make a circle, and we're all adding and subtracting and modifying. And when, when Buckaroo told that joke about the venomous woman, that wasn't my joke. That was Lisa that came up with that. So if you didn't like the, the venomous woman thing, you talk to Lisa. Don't come to me, okay? Or Buckaroo. It's not their fault. Um, oh, and let me put in one more plug for uh, my dad Wynn's uh, seminar that he's going to have at 4.30. I got advanced copies of the handouts. This seminar is not for ministers. It, it, we're all ministers in a sense. We all serve. But this is for all the men. And so we really want to encourage you to, uh, to show up for this. And um, if you come and you, you, know, are, you have other things to do or you're, you're not enjoying it and you leave after 10, 15 minutes, seriously, nobody's going to get all bent out of shape and get mad that you leave. If you're not getting anything, we'll go ahead and go. But come on, I think you're going to find it real enjoyable. So guys, we're going to be in the back with all the food. Isn't the food back there? So <laughs> nobody goes away hungry. Did, who did we arrange to sneak in the two six-packs? Did we make arrangements? No, no, we're not going to do that. No, that's... Now, when I go preach somewhere, uh, this is a true story, and the people who travel with me will tell you, I usually contact the pastor ahead of time and go over my sermon notes with him. And did I not do that with you, Mr. Gregory? This last time I went over my sermon notes with him. I figure it's the least I can do, more than a courtesy, but I really want to, you know, do the right thing. I don't want to go into a church and, and, and cause problems. Well, Mr. Gregory and I were going over the notes, and he said he didn't care for the opening story, so I left it out. And I thought it was a touching story, but I deferred to Mr. Gregory. So he starts to tell me a story about this one time, I forget how many years ago, he was up on the Indian Nation Turnpike, and he's driving along 75 miles an hour, and some woman in a car next to him was also traveling 75 miles an hour, and she's trying to multitask, driving, looking in the mirror, and putting on makeup. Now, Mr. Gregory's telling me this. He says, well, you know, I see this happen, so I wasn't too excited. He see her, uh, you know, she's trying to multitask. He said, what happens, though, is she starts to come over into his lane. And he's trying to be cool about it, and his wife's with him, and he's not wanting to curse at her. And because he wouldn't do that anyway, but, you know. 
But then she got halfway into his lane, and I guess it really scared poor Mr. Gregory, really just scared the daylights out of him. It scared him so bad that he dropped his electric shaver right into his coffee, <laughs> splashed the coffee all over his cell phone that he was trying to send a text message on. As Susie Q said, we will never get invited back up here again. <laughs> All right. This fictional story, and notice fictional, I'm fessing up now. This fictional story illustrates the attitude that some people have about the role of women in the church. Some seem to think that you wouldn't want a woman to handle, quote unquote, complicated ministerial duties because a woman wouldn't ought to handle all these things. She, if you asked her to preach, she, she'd go on and on. She'd go overboard for hours and hours. When I first came into the church as a young man in 1971, pastor invited me to spokesman's club. I show up there. It's all men. So I said to him last, later, I said, Mr. So-and-so, I said, why is it that, that there are no women here? Why is it just men? He said, True story said, men don't need, or women don't need a class in speaking. They already know how to talk. <laughs> what is the role of women in the church? To many, this is not an easy question. Controversy over the role of women in religion has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Today, we can see many Protestant preachers out there on TV. There are Protestant churches out there that have been founded by women. And this is offensive to some of the other Protestant denominations. The Roman Catholic Church has not been free from controversy regarding women. Many Catholics in America are in disagreement with the Vatican on the subject of ordaining women as priests in the Catholic Church. The Jews are not having it any easier. There are occasional problems at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Rabbinic rules say that only men can sing and pray and read the Torah out loud at the Wailing Wall. The rabbis say that women, this is the truth now, they say women may assemble at that location, but they're to do it in their own section and they are to remain in silence. The rabbis, the orthodox rabbis claim that a woman's voice should not be used in worship because it's lascivious and will entice men to have bad thoughts. Not long ago, some Jewish women, this was like I think eight or nine months ago, some Jewish women assembled at the Wailing Wall. They were singing, they were praying, they were reading the Torah out loud. And how was this received by the other Jews? Men threw rocks at them, police beat them, and other women bit them. True story, according to the Associated Press. What are women allowed to do and what should they not do when it comes to serving the ecclesia? This morning, brethren, we're going to see if we can find what the scriptures tell us is the role of women in the church. Brethren, let's see if we can better understand how women are to serve our Lord Jesus Christ as well as the church of God. Before we begin, I've got to acknowledge my sources. Over the years, i found a lot of material that's been put out by a lot of people. The Church God Seventh Day and uh, Seventh Day Adventists have put out some stuff that I've found really interesting, and I've used some of their material in my sermon today, so we want to give them credit. Let's begin our investigation today by going to the Old Testament. Now, when we go to the Old Testament on this subject of women in the worship service, it may surprise some to find that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gives women the right to virtual full participation in the religious life of the ancient Israelites. There is very little that the women were not allowed to do in the ancient Hebrew nation when it came to worship. And we're going to look at an important example, one that I really, really love to look at. 
But first, before we look into this, exa this example, let's back up a little. When we read in Scripture over and over that the kings of Israel and Judah took the children of Israel into apostasy, we see that happening, don't we? The book, books of Kings and the books of Chronicles, that's basically the story of the Israelite kings always taking them into apostasy and the Ju Judah kings usually taking them into apostasy. Children of Israel start using some pagan practices in their worship service. God had punished them by sending them into captivity and then some prophet would come along who was righteous and he teach them about national repentance. In our country today, I hear a lot of talk about national repentance. And no one wants national repentance more than I do. I wish with all my heart that the Church of God had a more powerful voice when it comes to preaching national repentance. Because the national repentance that's being promoted out there today is not the right kind of national repentance. There's some idea out there that, that seems to be that if we could just go back to the way that things were in the 1950s, God would be pleased with our country. And sure, a lot of things were better in the 50s than they are today. But brethren, I have no desire for our nation to go back to the 1950s when it comes to spirituality. Question, what were the biggest problems that God's people had in ancient Israel and ancient Judah. What were the two biggest sins that they had? It was Sabbath breaking and idolatry. When we read the Old Testament, we see this happening over and over and over again. Let's turn over to Ezekiel 20, verse 23. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 23. And here God is speaking and he says... Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 23, he says, I lifted mine hand up to them also in the wilderness, that I would scatter them among the heathen and disperse them through the countries. Verse 24, because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes and had polluted my Sabbaths, and their eyes were after their father's idols. Sabbath breaking, idolatry. Too many times today, when we're talking about national repentance, and I include a lot of church people in this, too many times they want America to go back to the 1950s. Brethren, we don't want to go back to the values of the 1950s. Why not? Because in the 1950s, this country was filled with idolatry and Sabbath breaking. Just like it was in the 1940s, just like it was in the 1890s, just like it was in the 1860s, just like it was in the 1780s when we created the Constitution. This country has always been a Sabbath-breaking nation. If we want true national repentance for this country, we should want it to be a repentance that will lead people to obey God's law following all the commandments, rejecting all aspects of paganism in our religion. Paganism that goes back to Baal worship and the Tower of Babel. This is the national repentance that we should yearn for. All right, let's go back to uh, ancient Israel. In the midst of this national sin that we see going on continually with these folks, we see a beautiful situation in 2 Kings 22. In the books of the Kings and the Chronicles, we don't see a whole lot of beautiful situations, do we? We see a whole lot of this, don't we? But here we see in 2 Kings 22, 
The situation leading up to this event is that the Israelites had been worshiping Baal. And the Bible calls this whoring. At this time that we're looking at, the Israelites are not, Israelites are not obeying God. They're violating the Sabbath. They're saying to each other, well, all these nations around us are basically good people. They say, let's learn from them. Let's go worship with them. We're going to figure out new ways that we can worship our God. Let's learn from these people. Did God accept this behavior? No. God hates when we include pagan practices in our worship of him. Well, back to our situation here. Along comes a new king, and his name is Josiah. Josiah. He wants to do better. The Holy Spirit is guiding Josiah into recapturing the faith of the patriarchs. Josiah wants to bring Yahweh's people back to the proper worship practices. So Josiah says, I think the first thing we got to do is repair the temple. 2 Kings 22 and verse 3. He says, And it came to pass in the 18th year of the king Josiah that the king sent Shapham, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulah, the scribe to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, verse 4, the high priest, that he may sum the silver, in other words, the money, the valuables, which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have delivered of the people. And verse 5, And let them deliver it, the silver, into the hands of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. Verse 6, Unto carpenters, builders, masons, to buy timber, hewn stone, and repair the house. Let's jump down to verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shephim the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphim, and he read it. And down in verse 11, it says, And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, he rent his clothes. Josiah was horrified. He was horrified because when he read the words of the books, the books of, of, of the Torah, he instantly realized how sinful his nation had been for generations. He realized that he had been misled by his parents and his grandparents. And so many of us have gone through this when God opened our eyes to the Sabbath and the annual festivals. We realized, and I know I certainly did when I was 21 years old, I realized that from the time of my birth, my parents had taught me to worship God falsely. And it says in verse 13, it says, Go ye inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is, is kindled against us because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of the book to do according unto all which is written concerning us. So, while the workers are ripping out the walls, they're repairing this wonderful building, the temple, they come across that something that hadn't been read for decades, for at least several generations. Those awesome first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Initially, Joshua and his advisors don't quite know what to do with these books because at first they're not sure that the books are the real thing. Back in those times, there are all kinds of apocryphal books that didn't need to be around. They find these books 
and they don't know whether or not these writings are really of God. They need to figure out whether they're going to study them or burn them. They don't know. And they've got to go to someone, and they've got to find out what to do with these books, and where do they go? They go to a woman. Second, Corinthians, or Second Kings 22, 14 says, So Hilkiah the priest and Ahakim and Akbor and Shepham and Asahiah went to Huldah the prophetess. Huldah the prophetess. And this is significant. God gave a woman the power and authority to make a major religious decision for his nation that day. The Holy Spirit did not inspire these leaders to go to a man. They sought a woman to make this tremendous decision that would determine the direction for an entire nation. And because of this woman's leadership, because of this woman's righteousness, because of her closeness to God, the Jews turned away from Baal and back to Yahweh. Notice what it says in verse 19, what Huldah says to Josiah. She says that uh, Josiah's fathers displeased the Lord because they went whoring after false religions. And she says, but you, Josiah, you have a tender heart and God will bless you. Do you have a tender heart? Will you be blessed because you have repented of the sins of your fathers? Do you still have the same zeal for God's law that you once had when your eyes were first opened to these wonderful truths about the Sabbath and his festival days? Or are you slowly slipping back into a love for the world's ways? It's politics. It's wars. It's anger. It's intolerance. It's polarization. What would Holda say to us today? Would she say what she said to Josiah or would she say maybe just the opposite? Because I know that a few years ago there were fathers in the church who were blessed because they had tender hearts when they obeyed their Lord. But their children today are not being blessed because they are whoring after the false Babylonian system that's out there that's so attractive today. Let's get back to Huldah. Someone says to me, well, Wes, why are you making such a big deal about this one-time thing? This is a unique situation because women, I've been told this, women were not allowed to actively participate in the temple. They say, Wes, women were not allowed to actively participate in the temple. Women couldn't participate. Let's examine that statement. Let's read 1 Chronicles 25. 1 Chronicles chapter 25, and let's look at verse 5, which says, And these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God, to lift up the horn. It's a musical instrument. And God gave to Heman 14 sons and three daughters. All these, the 14 sons and the three daughters, were under the hands of the Father for song in the house of the Lord with cymbals, psalteries, and harps for the service of the house of God. This scripture alone clearly shows that both men and women were actively participating in the temple the temple worship service. Let's, there's more. Let's go over to um, uh, Psalms 68. Psalm 68. And let's look at verse 24. Psalm 68, 24. It says, They have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. Verse 25. The singers went before. The players on instruments followed after. Among them were damsels playing with timbrels. Women were indeed allowed 
to play a very important religious role in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, we find a woman who's not only a judge, but you know a lot of Bible scholars call her a super judge. Now a lot of the judges back in those days were like provincial judges, or they were tribal judges. They would just judge in one tribe or one city. But then there was Deborah. She was consulted by Israelites from various tribes when they wished to have their disputes settled. These disputes were either too difficult for the local judges or they were perhaps of an intertribal nature. Deborah was the one who sent the Israelite commander-in-chief over all the armies. His name was Barak. She was the one who sent him to go to war. She was so respected by the Israelites that they said, Would you please accompany us into battle? You don't take women into battle. Well, they took Deborah because they knew she was close to God. They knew that, that, that she listened to God and, and could give them some good advice. From these scriptures alone that we've just read, we see that there were very few restrictions on women in the Old Testament. And yes, there were a few. We'll get into that. But the fact remains, brethren, that there were very few restrictions. There weren't a whole lot. Let's move on to the New Testament. What can we learn from the writings of the apostles? Well, the first thing we learn is that women labored side by side with Paul. Let's look over in Philippians 4, verse 3. Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. And here Paul's writing and he says, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, or you know, fellow laborer, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, and with Clement also, and with my other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. It's clear that Paul was giving equal recognition to women who served the church. And some brethren will tell you, and I've seen this in church publications, they will tell you that Paul was anti-woman. I sat there in my living room a few weeks ago with uh, me and some other guys were, uh, you know, drinking beer and eating chips and talking about stuff, and one of them actually said, Paul was anti-woman. But you can't say that about Paul, especially when you read the greetings and commendations that we find in the book of Romans. Let's look quickly at Romans 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Romans 16, 1, and it says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, that ye assist her in whatever business she hath need of. In other words, Paul is giving her a blank check. And he's saying, whatever she wants, you're to give it to her. That's Paul's blank check. He, she says, for she has been a soaker of many and of myself also. He says, verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, for who, uh, who have for my life laid down their own necks. I mean, these people risked their lives for Paul. He says, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Verse 6, greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Verse 12, salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, who has labored much in the Lord. Verse 15, salute Philologus and Julia and Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints that are with him. Paul was not anti-woman. Paul used women as he preached the gospel. Romans 16 is a who's who of men and women who labor together in the Lord, assisting Paul. Women were an important part of Paul's ministry. 
Paul did not exclude women from participating in church affairs. But now we come to the part where we must acknowledge that there are a couple of restrictions on women. And I can find basically only two restrictions for women in the church. First, when we read the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that women were not permitted to function as priests. That's very clear. We find this in Numbers 3. No one argues with that. This is crystal clear. And second, when we read the New Testament, it becomes clear that women were not permitted to function as pastors and elders. In 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, we call these the qualifications of a minister chapter. Anytime you find a guy who claims to be a minister and you don't think he is, you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and you see if he follows all that. And if he's not, you might want to question him. But in this thing, the, the, the ministerial qualification chapters of the New Testament, Paul makes it clear that an elder must be the husband of one wife. He is not only prohibiting polygamous from being elders, he's also prohibiting women in this role as well. Now let's talk about these two things. When we talk about these restrictions, someone says, well, did God restrict women from being priests because of the prevailing patriarchal, patriarchal male-dominated religious culture of the time? How many of you have heard that? You know you have, a bunch of you. The answer is no because the culture of the time permitted women to serve as pagan priestesses. Many pagan religions back then included women in the priesthood. So we can't say that Paul was mimicking some patriarchal, male-dominated religious culture of the time, because it didn't exist. People often ask, were women excluded from the priesthood to avoid the dangers of the Canaanite fertility cults and their sacred prostitution? No, that's not a good reason, because many pagan priestesses back then lived celibate lives just like nuns do today. And just because some pagan priestesses served as prostitutes in their temples is no good reason for God to exclude devout Israelite women from service. After all, can we talk about the sons of Eli? Those guys were bad, weren't they? They did some horrible things, uh, sexual improprieties. They were fornicators, but their immorality did not result in the abolition of the male priesthood. In fact, the danger of the male prostitution was almost as prevalent as female prostitution in the pagan temples during Old Testament times. If the danger of prostitution was the, re the reason for excluding women from the priesthood, then men would not have been eligible either if we use that line. All right, then why did God prohibit women from being in the priesthood? We've already established that women serve God well as prophetesses and judges. Why did God make this distinction when it came to the priesthood? Well, the answer appears to be that the role of the priest was seen as, and I think this is the key thing that we're looking at today, brethren, the role of the priesthood was to function as the head of the household. The head of the household. During the times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the male head of the household functioned as the priest, representing the household to God. Later, God appointed the tribe of Levi as priests instead of the head of each family. The New Testament continued this concept of appointing representative males as elders and pastors. Now someone says, well, 
doesn't gender distinction actually go all the way back to the sin of the Garden of Eden? Some people want to take it back there. They say, didn't God make Eve subordinate to Adam as part of a curse? And then they say, well, if that's the case, didn't Christ come away, come to do away with that curse? Well, after Adam and Eve sin, God makes a pronouncement on them. He says in Genesis 3.16, he says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And some say that after the sin of the Garden of Eden, the woman was then put under authority of the husband. Question, was the woman already under the leadership of the husband before the sin in the Garden of Eden? Yes, she was. The man was the leader in the relationship from the very, very beginning. We say this for three reasons. Number one, Genesis tells us that God made woman of the man to be a helper fit for the man and that God brought her to the man. And this certainly implies no inferiority. It only establishes the structure of the relationship. Number two, the warnings about the tree of knowledge are given to the man before the creation of the woman. It was Adam's responsibility to convey that knowledge to the woman, and this clearly shows a leadership function. And number three, Adam names the woman. Naming a person is an act that indicates authority over that person. A lot of you are parents. When you had kids, who got to name the kids? Was it the government? Was it the aunts and uncles, the grandma and the grandpa? No. You, the parents, have the authority over your children. You're the one who gets to give them the names. God named the celestial spheres. We find that in Genesis 1.5. But God gave Adam the right to name the woman. So we cannot say that the statement that we read in Genesis 3.16 about the man ruling over a woman is a curse. The man had already been given the responsibility of being the leader in the relationship. What seems to have changed after the sin, well, what, what happened was before the sin, there was a much more natural and harmonious relationship. It was much more natural and harmonious before. But now, after the sin, the relationship would be, or the leadership would be asserted in conflict in the same way that man's tilling the earth would also be done in conflict. And again, it wasn't that way before the sin. Let's look at another great misconception regarding women in the church. Let's read 1 Corinthians 14. A lot of guys love this scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, chapter 34 says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, and also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, in verse 35, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in church. Keep that word speak in mind. That's the key. Uh, but we're going to get into that. But first, let's look at 1 Timothy 2, real quick. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at verse 9. 1 Timothy 2, 9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefaced and sobriety, not embroidered with hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Verse 10 but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. That's what a woman's supposed to be happy about her accomplishments, her good works, not how hot she is, okay? Verse 11, let the woman learn in silence with all subjugation, verse 12, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man, 
over the man, but to be in silence. Now, notice the phrase saying that we should not be in We seem to have two problems here with this. We need to understand what Paul means when he says, first of all, that women should, be, should not uh, speak in church and that a woman should not have authority over the man. And here's where we find our common misconceptions. Let's first talk about women being silent as mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14. There is no way that Paul is telling women not to utter a single syllable in church. And some people would have you believe that. They say that when women first walk through the door, the minute church starts, women are not allowed to say a word. And I've seen uh, visitors go to some congregations where these visitors have become offended that women spoke during services. The women would make a prayer request. The woman might introduce a song and say, uh, this song I'm about to sing has special meaning for me because uh, I learned it just before my first son was born. Uh, they might give an announcement. And this is very offensive to some people. But Paul does not expect women to be totally, completely, 100% silent and quiet during church. Women obviously have to make some noise with their mouths when they sing. And this clearly has precedence in the Old Testament. And also we know that women prayed and prophesied in the New Testament church. We read this in 1 Corinthians 11.5. So we can say with assuredness that total silence is not what Paul had in mind in his writings. Well, then what did Paul have in mind? What did he mean? What Paul is telling us is that women shouldn't be asking a lot of questions of their husbands during the synagogue service. Apparently, this was a problem during Paul's time because we know that they had segregated services back then. The men sat in one spot. The women sat in another. They didn't sit together. And it seems as though some of the women were going to their husbands during the services in a different part of the synagogue asking questions of their husband. Paul had to address this disruption. He wanted to get it fixed. The whole concept of 1 Corinthians 14 is not about keeping women in their place. It's about keeping things orderly in the church. Paul is saying don't let noise and distractions degenerate service, the service into chaos. And this is part of his message. And we're going to get back to that just a little bit more. But what about this woman not having a, being forbidden to have authority over the man in 1 uh, Timothy 2? What's this all about? The question comes up, what man? Is it all men? Is it just certain men? How far does this prohibition go? For example, I have heard men say that women should never have a job where they supervise men. They say that this is a violation of 1 Timothy. No. This scripture has nothing to do with a woman's career. Some say, well, maybe Paul's talking about the church environment as a whole. All right, let's ask the question. What if the women are having some kind of a function here in the church building? Fundraiser, social, women's conference, open house for the community, anything, you name it. This is their event. They're in charge. And suppose they ask some of the men to come and move tables and chairs. Can these women tell men what to move and where to move it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been on the receiving end of that many times. A lot of you. There's nothing wrong with that. We in the church, God, do this all the time. There's nothing wrong with it. Paul does not preach against that in 1 Timothy. Well, who is the man that he's talking about? What Paul is saying is that no woman should become the head of the household, exercising authority over her husband. 
Paul is simply saying that the man is the one who has rulership in his family. This is not the wife's responsibility. It belongs to the husband and the father. That's what Paul is talking about. And back to 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul tells women not to speak, he's simply saying they're not to preach. They're not to get up in the pulpit and take on preaching, which is a head of household function within the ecclesia. Paul does not limit how much authority a woman can have in the church other than being a pastor or an elder. And let's demonstrate this further. Some churches allow women to serve on the board of directors. You can't find anything in scriptures against this. We did this in WCG in the old days. On the, the overall board of directors, there was at least one woman that I know of. We did this in CGI in the old days. There was a woman on the board of directors. There's no scripture that forbids this. I think that uh, there are many times out in the field when I visit churches, there are many times that women serve on a local board. Scripture does not forbid this. Again, let's ask this question regarding the local congregation. Suppose the demographics of a church today were such that there simply were not a lot of guys who were qualified to sit on the board of a local church. So the women church, so the women serve in the church. We see this happen all the time. There's nothing against this in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with church, a church having women who exert a lot of local authority and influence in a local congregation. I've known many churches like that. They have no pastor. The preaching is done by recordings or guest speakers. Women make the decisions regarding the finances and the activities. Other than not serving as pastor, they do everything else, and there's nothing in Scripture that forbids this. This is women filling a need. And can we agree that ministry or service is not a choice? Is there anyone here who dares to ask the question, I have to make a decision on whether or not I'm going to serve? We can't ask that question. We have no choice. We must serve, all of us. And usually, it's a simple matter of doing what needs to be done. Women who take on leadership functions in the church are simply doing what needs to be done. There are those who ask the question, they say, okay, okay, I acknowledge that women are basically prohibited from performing two functions in the church, exercising a pastoral role and anointing. And remember that James says it's the elders who actually do the anointing of the sin, the sick. The question continues, but what if, now get this question, listen careful, don't let it get passed. What if we decided to ordain women as pastors in our church and say, some denominations do this and don't they benefit from female pastoral ordinations? Brethren, there's such a thing as not a good question. Seriously. And I'm going to demonstrate this. You know, in, in your office, someone says, I'm going to ask a dumb question. There are no such things as a dumb question. Yeah, there are dumb questions. And I, all right, I take that back. I shouldn't say dumb. Betsy's on me all the time. Don't say dumb. There are ridiculous questions. I repent, Betsy. She caught me. There are ridiculous questions. Here's some more ridiculous questions. Do Baptists benefit from keeping Sunday? It's a ridiculous question. Do Catholics benefit from praying to Mary? Ridiculous question. Do the churches of this world benefit when they keep Christmas and Easter? It's a ridiculous question. These are bad questions. The correct question in all of this should be, what does the Bible tell us to do? That should be our approach instead of having ridiculous questions. 
We look at Scripture, we attempt to the best of our ability, as human as we are, we attempt to determine what God would have us do. This should be the way that we attempt to find our answers, not by asking bad and ridiculous questions. Another question invariably comes up. Didn't Paul say in Galatians 3.28 that there's to be no distinction to be made between men and women? Let's read what Paul wrote there. Galatians 3.28. I'm running out of time. I'm getting scared to death that that red light's going to go on back there. I've been here how many, two or three times. I didn't even know there was a red light back there until yesterday. And now I'm all, you know. Okay. He, Paul writes, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. Yet for all are one in Christ. Is Paul saying that once you're a Christian, there is no difference between the sexes. Careful how you answer that. Is that what he's saying? Because if you believe the answer to that is yes, then you will have to be consistent in your reasoning and consent to men marrying men. Okay? And we can't do that because we know that Paul taught against homosexuality. Of course Galatians 3.28 does not promote men marrying men. Neither does it promote women taking on the head of the household, whether it be at home or within the ecclesia. Okay, finally now we're getting to the point where we can start splitting hairs. Let's start dividing churches, right? Isn't that how we divide churches? We start splitting hairs over the little itty bitty things, right? I see that all the time out there, and I praise God that I come here and see the peace that y'all have. This is a wonderful body of Christ that we have up here. This is wonderful. But some people want to split hairs. People want to have rules for every possible scenario. You know, I saw a church divide over whether or not to go out and eat on the Sabbath. And we're not going to agree. Some of us are going to say, yeah, we can go out to restaurants. Some are going to say, no, we can't. But do we need to divide a church over? I saw a church totally destroyed over that one issue. They fought so hard and so violently about it, they don't even exist anymore as a congregation. I don't know what happened to these folks. People want to ask, well, can women lead the song service in church? A debatable subject, and I don't have the answers. For example, I've been to churches where several women stand up and announce a page number of a song, and then they start singing. I've also been to other churches where the song leader functions in more of a head of household role for the congregation. He not only leads songs, but he also admonishes and teaches during the song service. Two different churches, two different types of song leaders. And if we wanted to, we could spend hours or even days talking about all the possible combinations, permutations, circumstances. And if we wanted, we could get into a lot of good fights over this. Anybody in the mood for a good fight? I know I'm not. Instead, it is better for us to acknowledge that the Bible wants women to minister. Can we all agree on that? The Bible shows that God wants women to minister. The Bible wants all of us to serve. Every Christian, man or woman, needs to ask the question, how am I serving God and the church? We all need to ask that question. Every Christian should ask himself or herself every Sabbath, how am I helping to get the gospel preached? How am I helping to feed the flock? How am I helping in the praising of God? We should be a church of ministers, servants, all of us, men and women. So I ask you today, brethren, please, everyone, examine the role that you have in the church and your level of service in the church. Everyone, men and women, adults and children. Now let's conclude this thing. The red light's not on. Let's conclude it before it comes on. My guess 
you know, sometimes I've given this sermon a few times before, and my guess is that if I give it, there's a good chance some guy's going to hear this and he's going to smugly think, oh, this is so cool. Wes has put women in their place. And I don't think I have. And, and if you think that I have done that, I'm going to apologize right now because that has not been my intent to put any woman in her place. I mean, I, I, my desire is to have respect for, and admiration and love for women, and I try to show that all the time. Anyone who knows me knows that I would never attempt to put a woman in their place. The truth is, brethren, my message of exhortation is really not for the women today. My purpose today is to put men in their place. We see in Scripture that God has made a couple clear distinctions regarding the roles of men and women and how they are to comport themselves within the ecclesia. We see that within the body of Christ, men are to function as the head of the household. And I am sorry to say that over the years, I have seen too many men refuse to do their job in this regard within the church and within the family. Let's acknowledge that all men in the church cannot do all things. Not every man is capable of leading songs. Not every man is capable of giving open prayer. Not every man is capable of preaching. That being said, we must also acknowledge that too many men in the church are capable of serving in these ways, but they won't. Does it happen here in Tulsa? I don't know. I have no idea. I have no desire to get involved in here. But I have seen this happen over the years in the church. Over the decades that I've been in the church, I have known men who are perfectly capable of serving a whole lot more than they do, but they choose not to because of either selfishness or laziness. Now, someone right now popped up, well, Wes, you're judging them. No, these are their words to me. Over the years, some men have told me they have said, this is a direct quote, I don't serve because I'm just kind of on the lazy side. Men have admitted to me that they don't serve because they are selfish. These are their words. They're not mine. Men, you know in your heart whether or not you can serve. No one else can make that judgment for you. Serving is like prayer, fasting, Bible study, tithing, keeping the Sabbath. It's personal. It's between you and God. No man can judge you. But someday you will be judged by your Lord and Savior in this matter. As Christian men, we must always be willing to step up to the plate and perform our duties as the head of household within the ecclesia. If there are churches out there that are being pastored by women, it's probably because some man or men have abrogated their responsibility as head of the household within the ecclesia. And for those of you who are preaching, it's your job to be the head of the household and preach meat in due season. We don't need to be wasting sermon time on worthless prophetic, specul prophetic speculation. We don't need to be misapplying Luke 21, 34 as we babble on about some current event. We don't need to be wasting sermon time promoting some political agenda. Instead, our sermons should be filled with helpful admonitions and encouragement. That's what this is all about. Our messages should be filled with hope and joy and love. We should be encouraging the brethren to study their Bibles and to overcome sin. We should be pointing people towards Christ and away from the world. Regarding the message today, no one is suggesting it's time for us to put women in their place and make sure that they know that we men are boss. 
No one is suggesting that this is the time for men to get an extra dose of testosterone. No one is suggesting that we need to get more muy mas macho. No, now is the time for the men in God's church to step up to the plate and serve with love, with compassion, in the same way that Jesus ministered during his three and a half years on this earth as a mortal man. Men, let's be examples for our women and our children. Let's serve the body of Christ, encouraging those we love to seek Jesus and his kingdom. The world needs the church of God to show them the way. In our head of the house capacity, men, let's show them servant leadership as we all worship our heavenly father and serve the body in Christ. Thanks again so much for your hospitality, and you all have a wonderful women's conference.